Well, um, we are in 1 Corinthians 12. My, the title of my message is the first few words of the text. Now concerning spiritual gifts. You know, years ago, um, when I was doing an internship here in Indianapolis, uh, newly married, um, out of curiosity, I attended a faith healing service. I don't know if any of you have ever been to one of those or not. Uh, it was located in a hotel ballroom over by the airport, I assume for the convenience of the speaker to go in and out. Uh, the guest speaker was the late Ernest Angley from Akron, Ohio. He died a couple of years ago, the ripe old age of 99. Uh, he was well-known nationally, as you can tell, uh, from his televised weekly programs. Uh, the room was full. The, the ballroom was, was full. There was probably at least, I, I thought, around 400 people or so. Uh, mostly young adults. Uh, They were anticipating something. There was a buzz in the room. Uh, The people were not there waiting to listen to what Angley would say, but what he would do. Um, Would people be truly healed right in front of our eyes? That's why I was there too. Not because I believed I would see true biblical healing, but because I wanted to see the spectacle for myself. Angley came out. He began to lead the crowd in singing very familiar Christian songs. You would know all the songs that he sang. I don't even remember the gist of his message. It was kind of a rambling diatribe through the Scripture. You'd recognize a lot of what he said as being from the Bible. He certainly took an offering In fact, I won't even go into that, but um, he had the plates passed four different times. Um, He took an offering. And then we got to the healing time at the end. And although the healings were very, I say healings in uh, air quotes here, they were very suspect. Uh, They were unverifiable things like someone had a sore neck or someone had a bad back, that kind of thing. It was obvious that the focus of everyone in the room was on Ernest Angley, the healer. He was the special one. He was the one with the power, the one who was really connected to God more than all the rest of us were, evidently. You know, the Corinthian, one of the Corinthian problems was this, and it's, and it's a 21st century problem too, by the way. Untaught Christians come to assume many times that because something is dramatic, it must be divine. If, it's, if it works, or if it seems like it works, it must be wonderful. If it's powerful, it must be real. It must be true. Paul's going to address that clearly in the verses to follow. In fact, we're starting a new section that starts here in chapter 12 and goes all the way to chapter 14. Um, And this is um, something he's going to spend a lot of time in over the next several weeks as we work through these chapters. But there's something more basic. There's something more essential that Paul wants to get at first. And it's in these opening three verses that I want to look at this morning. If if you're taking notes, 
Uh, a way to, to outline this might be, uh, first of all, a new subject. Verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. This little phrase, now concerning, often introduces a new section in Paul's letter. He did this back in chapter 7 when he was introducing issues of morality and marriage. He did this in chapter 8 when he introduced the subject of meat offered unto idols. He'll do this again in chapter 16. And he does it here in chapter 12. The word spiritual emphasizes that these things he's going to be talking about in chapters 12 to 14 are, are gifts that are from the Spirit. They're not just any gifts. They're spiritual gifts. They're from the Spirit. Paul uses this formula, I do not want you to be uninformed. He uses it and, and other places in his letters as well, to indicate that he wants the Corinthians to be informed. And this is something that is important. It may have been one, although the Scripture doesn't say, it may have been a subject that the Corinthians brought up for Paul to address, like they had uh, back in chapter 7. And as I mentioned, he's going to take these chapters, 12 to 14, to deal with many aspects of spiritual giftedness. It's important. And, and, and as always, it seems like the Corinthians are taking something that's important and messing it up and causing divisions in the church over it. And we'll get into all of that in the weeks to come. Paul's insights will be helpful to us too as we consider the ministry of spiritual gifts at Heather Hills and in the church at large. And how are we to understand these dramatic spiritual gifts special gifts that were practiced here in the early church and are still practiced by charismatic churches today. Uh, By the way, the charismatic movement in the world is still one of the fastest growing movements in all of the world when it comes to religion. Sweeping across Africa, sweeping across South America, sweeping the Far East, and of course is all over our country too. We'll get into all that, all of it in good time. But there's something more important first that Paul wants to deal with. And that moves us on to point number two, a past reminder. Look at verse two. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Notice Paul doesn't appeal to their emotions here to their minds. He says, now, think about what you know. You know. Use your brains, he's saying. Think this out. Remember back before you were saved, you were led astray to mute idols. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a a very summary statement of what it means to be lost. It's the condition of men and women outside of Jesus Christ. When you go back to work tomorrow, for those of you in the workplace, those of you going back to school tomorrow, those of you going to community events, talking with your neighbors, whatever is on your itinerary for this week. Tomorrow morning, when you encounter your lost friends, realize this. They are pagans. They are without Christ. And somehow or another, 
They are being led astray. And the place where they end up is idolatry. They live with an illusion of freedom. They think that they're in control of their lives, but all the time, they're in bondage. They think they can see things, but the truth is they're blind. They're held in captivity. Paul said something very similar back in, or over in Ephesians 2, the first couple of verses. You know these verses. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Corinthians here are reminded by Paul of their pre-Christian lives when they were under the control of idols, of false gods, false teachers. Of course, the Old Testament deals a lot with idolatry, addresses the futility of worshiping idols. Uh, Psalm 115.5, idols have mouths but cannot speak. Jeremiah 10, verse 5, sums up the ineffectiveness of idols. It says this, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. What a picture. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. You know, in the first century... At the time of the, the church at Corinth, the, the most famous, famous example of this near the Corinthians was about 120 miles away in the little town of Delphi, Greece, which you can go see today, uh, the ruins. Uh, the temple of Apollo was there, and there was uh, a woman who was known as an oracle who would sit on a stool in the middle of that temple over top of this crack, this fissure, in the crust of the earth, and in this, from this fissure, there were gases, there were fumes that came up out of that crack, and the woman would sit over top of this, and she would be in a trance, uh, wouldn't we all? Um, and, and she would offer gibberish. She would go into a trance, she would offer gibberish, and then there were priests at this temple who would interpret what the oracle said to the people who had come to the temple, asking questions, asking what was going to happen to them, prophecies, things like that. She was thought to be communicating with the gods. In reality, she was just high on fumes. But the Corinthians would have known of this, and, and this would have not been uncommon, this kind of idol worship, whether it was to the, Del- the, the oracle at Delphi, which was very... Uh, prominent in, in their day, or just their local gods. Like, like the kind Paul references in Acts 17 on Mars Hill when he talks about all the idols that he had seen in the marketplace. Why does Paul make this point? Why verse 2? Why does he send them back to remember where they have come from? Well, it helps set up verse 3. It's demonstrating that spiritual experiences are not self-validating. They're not self-authenticating. Just because you have some kind of experience does not mean it's true or it's real. 
Pagans have spiritual experiences all the time. But they are to be rejected. Paul says they're led by idols. So there's a past reminder. There's a new subject. And now thirdly, look at verse 3. There is a critical distinction. A critical distinction. This is the... This is the heart of the text for this week. Therefore, I want you to understand, Paul says, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The close connection between verse 2 and 3, of course, is supported by the word, therefore. These introductory words here, I want you to understand, confirms the importance of what he's about to say. Just like he said at the beginning, that he did not want them to be uninformed. Now, again, he says, I want you to get this. This is important. Those who speak in the Spirit never say, Jesus is accursed, or another way of saying that is, Jesus is be cursed. The question we have to ask ourselves is, were Corinthians in this church cursing Jesus? That, that, sounds, that sounds pretty far out, doesn't it? To think of a church where people, a Christian church, where people would be cursing Jesus. Well, do you remember the text over in Galatians that Paul wrote, Galatians 3.13? He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. For it is written, and he, and he goes back to the, the Pentateuch, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Do you remember that verse? The Jews would certainly understand that. Uh, they may have repeated it. Jesus is cursed because Jesus hung on a cross. Commentator Leon Morris wrote this, It is not beyond the bounds of possibility that some excitable and imperfectly instructed Christians had distorted Galatians 3.13 by means of some ecstatic utterance, some gibberish. So because it was coming out in some kind of different language, because it was being expressed within this framework of spiritual gifts, people might have said, you know what? You know, that's powerful. You know, that's, something's happening here. I don't know what it is, but this is, this is something. Not unlike the young people that I witnessed at that faith healing event all those years ago. They didn't hear the gospel from Angeli, But they saw a lot of stuff that was dramatic and had a flair. And so Paul's trying to make something clear here. I think the principle is that we don't, be we don't begin to judge accuracy and doctrine on the basis of experience rather than on the basis of content. And that content, of course, is in the Scripture. So we don't know that Corinthians were necessarily saying this. This might have been just a contrast that Paul is using for his main point, which we'll get to in just a second. But it's certainly possible that perhaps there were Jews in that church who were calling Jesus cursed because he was hung on a tree and using that against, against him in some way. 
This is one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, why we work so hard in this church to try to teach consecutively through the Bible, why we don't pick and choose, why we don't pull a verse out here or a verse out here and go on our hobby horses, why we try to just go week by week, paragraph by paragraph, and work our way through. To be honest, it's challenging to, for the teacher. It's challenging for the hearer. There's no question about that. There's many easier ways to attract a crowd or to entertain and make people feel good or, or to build loyalty to a personality. But these methods do not build people to spiritual maturity. They don't help them persevere through trials. They don't help Christians discern truth from error. Only the exposition of the Word of God over time, faithfully and accurately, accomplishes that. Here's the truth. If we want to be able to spot what's counterfeit, we won't unless we have a thorough grasp of what is genuine. What a person truly believes about Jesus Christ and Him being Lord, which we'll talk about in a second, is the test, Paul is saying, of whether he or she has the Holy Spirit. So look, look, at the, look at the last part of the verse there. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I, I, when, I, when I used to think about this verse, I struggled a little bit with it because I know folks that have a very different view on the church, on the scriptures, on Jesus Christ. Uh, folks and even in cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or, or, or things that are far out, that, that, that some of those people would, would say, Jesus is Lord. They would say those words. And according to this verse, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So what, what are we to do with something like that? It's true, isn't it, that anybody can mouth those words Jesus is Lord. Anybody can come up and say, I believe Jesus is Lord. And, you know, we'll talk to them and make sure they try to understand the gospel. And they can tell us they understand the gospel. And we'll take them over in the baptismal tank and we'll dunk them. You know, they say, Jesus is Lord. Okay. Hey, you're in. Anyone can say it. But Paul is saying, no one can make a true expression of that unless they are truly in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. That comes across very clearly, even in the words and ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. Do you remember what he said in Matthew 7, 21, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, right before the, right before the conclusion? He said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? 
He's saying, don't use my name. Don't call me Lord and disobey me. You, you can only say and mean Jesus is Lord by the ministry of the Holy Spirit evidenced through a life of obedience. This contrast between cursing Jesus and confessing him as Lord is introduced, I think, by Paul here at the beginning of this whole section on spiritual gifts because Jesus' lordship, the fact that we follow him, he's our master, we do things his way, that is the criterion for true spiritual experience. What did, what did he say in Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The truth of Jesus' lordship, it's foundational and it's pivotal for this whole conversation that Paul's about to have on spiritual gifts because like the Corinthians messed up stuff and we mess up stuff too, don't we? But like the Corinthians would mess up stuff, you know, people who would glory in their spiritual gifts. Oh, I have this gift and this gift is way better than your gift. Let's, let's just let my gift have all the attention. Let's let my gift have all the spotlight. Anyone who glories in their own gifts are subtly, or maybe not so subtly, thinking that they are sovereign. They are Lord, and not Jesus. Confessing Jesus as Lord is something that doesn't come because we just figure it out on our own. Because we just decide in our in and of ourselves we're going to do it. It's something that comes from the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, changing us, regenerating us, giving us life, as the Bible says, so that we recognize who Jesus actually is, the Lord, and call on his name in a sincere, genuine, humble manner. What did Jesus say of the Holy Spirit's ministry? Do you remember? Here's John 16 14, he said, Jesus said that this, this desire of the Holy Spirit is going to be to glorify Jesus. John 16, 14, he, Jesus says, He will glorify me. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit did by revealing to us the inspired Word of God. He took the Word of Christ and He gave it to us. He inspired men to write it down for us perfectly. And we have it today. The Holy Spirit does exactly what Jesus said He would do. He glorifies Jesus and His Word. To put the matter another way, this is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, both of the extremes, if on the one hand, Corinthians, 
if you want to exalt your spiritual experiences as the unmistakable proof that you are the great one, or if you're on the other side and you're skeptical of any movement of the Holy Spirit, and you want to question everything that, uh, that the Holy Spirit might be doing, Paul gives us a Christ-centered focus. This is something to look for in the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives, certainly through spiritual giftedness. The Holy Spirit makes us receptive to Jesus. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to point us to Jesus, to glorify Jesus, for to us to help see who Jesus is and to love him and to follow him. And so these three verses at the start of this long section, we're going to get into the gifts themselves starting next Sunday. But this long section on spiritual gifts the, that opens with these three verses this, this opening is not just to provide a test to help Christians distinguish between false spirits and true spirits, or false gifts or true gifts. These opening verses provide a test for us to establish who has the Holy Spirit at all. And this, that's why I say this is a more important question. Before we get into the topic of the spiritual gifts, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church, and we're going to get all into that. I mean, we're going to get into it over the next couple months. But before we go there, here's the more important thing. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you in the Holy Spirit? Are you in Christ to begin with? Can you say Jesus is Lord sincerely, believingly, faithfully, from your heart and your life imperfect as our lives are but our life has a pattern of following jesus can we say that i'll ask the praise team to come back up for our final song here in a minute let's just think as they're coming how can we apply these verses this morning let me just give you a couple ideas first if you're here this morning uh, maybe you're a guest maybe you've been here many times if you're here this morning and you're not following Jesus as your Lord and Savior, my message to you, my plea to you this morning would be to turn away. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your running of your own life. Believe who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he died on a cross for your sins in your place that he rose from the dead the third day, offering eternal life and forgiveness to all who believe, to all who follow him as their Lord. We'd love to help you start following Jesus. We'd love to hear you say Jesus is Lord from a heart that believes it. And if the Holy Spirit is kind of opening your eyes to that this morning, maybe for the first time, we would love to talk to you after the service. You can slip right over here to, to your left in the corner uh, with the cubicle there to talk to someone after the service who can open the Bible, pray with you, and show you how to start following Jesus. Any Christian around you would love to talk to you about that as well. And by the way, there may be someone here this morning 
who thinks that he or she is a Christian, you would say, Jesus is Lord. But the way that you live, the thoughts that you think on a regular basis, habitually, would conflict with that confession. The New Testament does call us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. The worst thing that could happen to you or to I is to enter eternity and say, Lord, Lord, I did this for you. I went to church. I tried to live a good life. I sang the songs. I tried to help people. But hear him say in response to you, I never knew you. It's the worst possible thing. Now, I'm not saying that you live a perfect life. I've said that once before, and let me just say it again. All of us sin. The best of us sin. The Apostle Paul struggled with sin all throughout his Christian life. But there should be a a conviction of sin when you sin. There should be a pattern of following Jesus. When you fall, you get up again and you keep persevering. You keep moving forward. That's what Christians do. And if you find yourself not under conviction of sin, if you find yourself living life completely for yourself in your own way, let me, let me just encourage you to consider the fact you may not be a true follower of Jesus. And you need to consider that. Think about that. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, take a minute to remember as Paul encouraged the the Corinthians to do, take a minute to remember what your life was like before Jesus saved you. Now, I know (laughs) that you all weren't idol worshipers. Um, In our own way, we all were, right? Maybe not worshiping little statues or icons or things like that, but we worship, a lot of us worship our own pleasure, A lot of us worshipped money or power, fame, career. But think back to what you were like before Jesus saved you. Remember how you were enslaved to idols of your own heart. Remember how Jesus set you free. How he put his spirit in you. And how that spirit has helped you to be convicted about sin, to understand the word when you read it, to give you boldness in evangelism, to help you keep going, to make you more like Jesus, little by little, every day. Let that knowledge comfort you this morning and encourage you this morning. But if I would challenge you this morning, even followers of the Lord Jesus, the ones in here who would say Jesus is Lord and mean it and do our best to live it, let me even challenge you this morning, don't keep that precious knowledge to yourself. The gospel was never designed to end with you. Someone brought it to you. You heard it, preached or shared by someone else who was close to you. Someone loved you enough to give the gospel. It was never supposed to stop with you. 
So let me challenge you. Take this wonderful message of the gospel that Jesus is Lord. By the way, what does Philippians tell us? One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen. But we don't want it to be too late for the millions of people all around us who are lost, who are blind, who need the light of the gospel. So take it to them. It's more important than the sports teams that you follow so, you know, fanatically. It's more important than the hobbies that you love to do every, every second when you get a chance. It's more important than your career, than your job, your nine to five. This is why you're here, to make disciples. So let's not keep this wonderful knowledge of the gospel that opened our eyes to say Jesus is Lord. Let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's share it. Let's spread it boldly. We're going to sing in just a moment, and the service will be closed with a benediction. But uh, just think this morning how the Lord is speaking to you in his word, how you should respond to the Lord. What is a, what is a step of action that you should take as a result of listening to the word this morning? And then take it and, have, and let, let the Holy Spirit continue to make you like Jesus.